Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 2. Our reading tonight starts with verse number 15. And it's uh, been hmm, a couple of weeks since we've been into our lesson here. And we're still studying Paul's rebuke of Peter in this second chapter. And this is really a, an unusual story, especially for those that want to defend the infallibility of the apostles and especially infallibility of the apostle Peter because here we find in scripture a very serious mistake that Peter made in his conduct as a Christian leader and this mistake was serious enough that it was in danger of confusing both Jews and Gentiles alike on the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith which is justification. Now, in verse number 14, Paul said that Peter and others that made this mistake walked, uh, showed that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. That's in verse number 14. And if you'll look there in that 14th verse, the word uprightly, kind of an interesting word. It's translated from the word orthopadio, which is the same word from which we get orthopedics. And so Peter, he says, did not walk a straight line. Uh, according to the doctrines of the faith, but he's wobbling from side to side. And as we've discussed, it, it wasn't that Peter didn't know the truth because the apostles were always in agreement on doctrine. Their doctrine is right. The problem was his conduct. And for the reasons we've already discussed in several messages, his practice was not the same as his principles. And so Paul had to confront him, and these next verses contain the rebuke and the argument against his practice. Now, if you look in the scriptures at Galatians chapter 2, let, let's back up, and I'm going to confuse your reading just a little bit here. We're going to read some and skip some. But let, let's back up to verse number 14 to kind of catch the thought as we go into the 15th verse. It says, but when I saw, and this is Paul speaking, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now if you go down to verse number 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I decided that we would take our study tonight and talk about the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. And this is really the backbone issue, you might say, or the spine on which all the other doctrines of Christianity are connected. This is the doctrine of justification. And although I've used that word repeatedly throughout our study of the first chapter and also the first 14 verses of chapter 2, the first usage of the word is actually in the, in the 16th verse of the second chapter. Now, it appears five times in these verses, four times in verses 16 and 17, and finally in verse number 21, 
where you see the word righteousness, that's actually the same word and could well be translated justification in that verse. And this doctrine is so central to the body of the Christian faith that it's extremely difficult for us to talk about salvation, to talk about Christian living, to talk about Christian service or any of those things without using this word or actually bringing some reference into it concerning it. It's impossible to talk about the suffering of Christ, about the death of Christ on the cross, unless this doctrine is a part of that discussion. So this is the doctrine that upholds all of the others in Christianity. This doctrine is the underlying issue, in fact, in what we've been studying the book of Matthew. And you might not, may not have recognized that at first, but all of the contention that exists between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees is actually over this doctrine. They sought to be justified by things that they did, by the works of the law. And Jesus said, you cannot be justified in that way, but justification comes by faith in him. Now, if there's one other word that we could choose to show the worldview of this doctrine, I think we could use the word battleground. In the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, Job asked, how shall man be just with God? And one of his criticizing friends, Bildad the Shuite, asked, How then can man be justified with God, or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? And salvation itself is found in the answer to that question. How can we be justified? What is the method of our justification? And that answer is not found in a long list of confusing different types of doctrine, but there are actually only one of two ways that we can be justified in the sight of God, and that is, one, that we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, or we are justified by our works. And that's the battleground. That's the war for the soul. That's where it's fought. In the Garden of Eden... Adam drew a line in the sand, and he stood on one side of that line and God on the other. And Adam, after he had sinned, his first inclination was to make fig leaves in order to cover up his sin or, to, or in order to help himself in the eyes of God and to cover his nakedness. Now, that was his attempt to be right with God by his own efforts. And God was not going to have any part of that. And so God totally rejected Adam's plan for his justification. And instead, God took away those fig leaves and he took the skins of animals. He slew animals. He sacrificed animals and clothed Adam and Eve. And that was a symbol for all time of the way that God would make man right with him. And that is that the human race is justified only by the actions of another. And faith is the instrument by which those actions of another put us into right standing with God. Now, instead of just breaking down the verses that I read to you this week, I'm going to spend my time tonight explaining to you the doctrine of justification. If we're to understand the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book, if we're to understand the Bible, if we are to understand the construct of Christianity itself, then we must know this doctrine well. Martin Luther said, This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. And that might be what you thought I've been doing here, is beating this into your heads continually. 
Well, do we really need to do that? Well, I think that we do, because if you're going to give the gospel to anyone, to your family, to your children, to your friends, to your co-workers, to somebody that you meet on the street, if you're going to give them the gospel, you cannot talk to them about salvation unless you talk to them about the way that sinners are justified with God. Now, we know the sense of urgency with Luther as he taught the doctrine because he was confronted with this monstrosity of Roman Catholicism that for 1,200 years had been built up into this elaborate system of justifying works that could never make a person right with God. Now, Roman Catholicism pointedly rejects justification by faith alone. Now, going back to Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And when we study that verse, we notice that the word accursed is the word or is the same as anathema. And that happens to be a, a word that Roman Catholicism really loves to use. This is what Martin Luther faced in the 16th century with the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent made these statements. In canon number 9 of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church said, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. In other words, cursed. Canon number 12. If anyone say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. Canon number 14, if anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because that he assuredly believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified but he who believes himself justified, and that by his faith alone absolution and justification are effected, let him be anathema. In canon number 23, if anyone saith that a man once justified can sin no more nor lose grace, and that therefore he that falls and sins was never truly justified, or on the other hand, that he is able during his whole life to avoid all sins, even those that are venial, except by a special privilege from God as the church holds in regard of the blessed virgin, let him be anathema. Canon number 24, if anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said good works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Canon number 30, if anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sinner, the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance into the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be accursed." Now, you keep those statements in mind as we go through our lesson tonight, and we'll see how those are contrary to God's word. Now, it's 
it's easy to understand why Martin Luther wanted to beat this doctrine into the heads of the people that he taught. He went on to say that justification is the most principal and special article of Christian doctrine, for it is this doctrine which maketh true Christians indeed. And further, he says, if the article of justification be once lost, then is all true Christian doctrine lost. I'm thankful that Martin Luther came to those conclusions. But he only found out what Baptists had been teaching for centuries, going all the way back to the time of Jesus Christ. Now, the Roman Catholic Church had all of those centuries to build up these false doctrines, and they kept cross-pollinating their fig trees in order to get more elaborate, justifying works out of them. And all of that time, here were God's people preaching the same doctrine of justification that was taught by Paul to the Galatians. Well, we have the matter to consider then. What does it mean to be justified? So that's number one on your outline tonight, the meaning of justification. Justification is a forensic term. That means that it's a matter of law, that it's a legal term that's been borrowed from the courts. And to help us to understand it just a little bit better, justification is the opposite of condemnation. When a person is at trial and he's declared guilty, he is condemned. And when he is declared innocent or not guilty, that's when he's justified. So by justification, the Bible means that a sinner is declared not guilty, which is equal to saying that he has been declared righteous. So we have a little bit of a definition here that we'll start with, that biblical justification is when God the judge, by an act of his grace declares the sinner righteous and treats him as innocent. Now, many times you'll hear people try to simplify the definition of justification, and they'll shorten it up to this, that justification means just as if I had never sinned. Now, that's not really completely accurate because that definition only deals with the negative side of justification. We are forgiven of our sins that we have committed. That's true. But that's an incomplete definition because justification also includes positive righteousness. So it means not only just as if I had never sinned, but also just as if I had done everything right. You see, God has to have both of those before he can justify a sinner. And this is why our statement of faith, and I need to explain to you, I hope everybody in the church has read our statement of faith. It's a document that you ought to know, that you ought to read. And under the article on justification, this is what our statement of faith says. And the first part of it is the negative consideration. We believe that the great gospel blessing which Christ secures to such as believe in him is justification. That justification includes the pardon of sin and the promise of eternal life on principles of righteousness. The second part of the statement is of the instrumental cause, which is faith. And it says that it is bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood. Then the third part is the positive consideration, by virtue of which faith, by which of, uh, virtue of which faith, his perfect righteousness is freely imputed to us of God. And then the fourth part of the statement gives us the result that it brings us into a state of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures every other blessing needful for time and eternity. Now let's follow that through 
a little bit further tonight. First of all, we're going to look at the negative considerations of justification. Number one, justification does not mean to be acquitted. It doesn't mean that a person comes into God's court of law and he's able to successfully defend himself against the charges that have been made against him. It doesn't mean that God has weighed all of the evidence in our case and he's decided that we're not guilty after all. And it doesn't mean that when all the evidence is in that God has no other choice but to declare us innocent of all the charges. Now, there are many people that try to approach God in that way. You remember the story of the publican and the, and the Pharisee in the book of Luke, how that that Pharisee stood and he talked to God as he was praying and he talked about all the virtues that he had and he spoke to him about how he must surely be better than this lowly publican who was a sinner. Others try this approach. They say, God, look at how clean that my life is. Look at how I attend church. Look, look at the things that I do. Look at how that nothing that I do actually merits condemnation. I have to be innocent because no one as good as me should have to go to hell. And Romans 3.19 put it into all of that, where Paul says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Notice he says that all, that every mouth may be stopped. So God is not going to hear our defense because one infraction of God's law makes us guilty of the entire law. So we can't be acquitted based upon any inherent righteousness. And by that word, of course, I mean the goodness that it's in us. We can't be right with God because of our own goodness. Now, secondly, justification does not mean to be pardoned. That is to be found guilty but given a second chance. So justification doesn't mean that God acknowledges that we have sinned, but God is willing to forgive it and to forget all about it. And there's some people that think that way. They say, well, God loves everybody, and there's no way that a good God is ever going to send anybody to hell. And so they reason that God is not going to punish anyone, so if you sin, it's okay. It's all right, because God's going to give you another chance. Well, that kind of reasoning is totally false and unbiblical because God could not be God if he allowed sin to go unpunished. God is by his nature a completely just being. Now, you, you hear all the time people complain about judges in our courts of law, how that sometimes they'll let people go that should spend their lives in prison or even have their lives taken away from them. And we say, well, justice needs to be served. When people break the law, they need to be punished for breaking the law. Justice needs to be done. And it's the same way with God. The only just thing for God to do is to punish transgression of the law. And that's exactly what he does. In Exodus chapter 34, speaking of God, it says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. So, being justified is not because God has decided to pardon us by overlooking sin. Now, we are pardoned when we're justified, but it's not because God has overlooked sin. Someone has to pay the penalty for the transgression of the law. Now, thirdly, justification does not mean to be paroled. And that seems to be the idea of people who believe they can lose their salvation. That they look at their justification as a parole or probation. 
So they realize this. They say, well, yes, we're guilty. We have sinned against God, and they know that they're free because of what Christ has done, but God's going to allow them to stay free only if they promise to be good boys and not get into any more trouble. So their justification comes down to the things that they do. So they're self-reliant. And it's amazing how many people will say, oh, yes, we do believe in salvation by grace. We believe in salvation by grace through faith, but then just immediately they turn around and proceed to deny the meaning of grace. We cannot be justified on any merits. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that has to keep us saved. So justification is not a parole. God doesn't say, now I've saved you, and now... I depend upon you to walk a straight and narrow path. You have to do that in order to maintain your right standing. And if you don't, then back to the slammer you go. God doesn't look at us that way. God looks to someone else who stands responsible for us and is the surety when we sin. So those are negative considerations. Now we talk about the positive side, positive considerations of justification. Now let me give you one of the finest definitions of justification I think we can find. And this is given by Thomas Paul Simmons in his book, A Systematic Study of Bible Doctrine. He says, justification is that instantaneous, everlasting, gracious, free, judicial act of God, whereby on account of the merit of Christ's blood and righteousness, a repentant, believing sinner is freed from the penalty of the law, restored to God's favor and considered as possessing the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ by virtue of all of which he receives adoption as a son. Now, what do we find in that definition? Well, we see that justification is not because of any meritorious work on our part, but it comes because of Jesus' blood and righteousness that God does not declare us to be just because he's overlooked our sin, not because he's giving us a second chance, not because we're not really guilty after all, but the only reason that we're justified in the sight of God is because that Jesus Christ took the penalty of our sins upon himself. We are justified because God's law is satisfied and not for any other reason. So justification is a legal act enacted by the court of heaven. It's not the thing that makes us inwardly righteous or holy. And that's one of the things that Roman Catholicism confuses about the doctrine. Inward holiness is brought about by sanctification. Justification changes our legal status with God. It doesn't change our moral status. Now, we're not studying sanctification tonight, but remember this, if you want to make a note of it, just to show you the difference, that justification changes our legal status, sanctification changes our moral status. So we go then from a standing of condemnation to one of freedom. Now, let me move on then to the second part of our study tonight, and that is the method of justification. The method does not include being justified by our moral character or by any works of the law. So how are we justified? Well, the scripture says that justification is by faith. In the fourth chapter of Romans, 
we have what might be called the definitive explanation on the doctrine of justification. And, of course, we can throw in the book of Galatians there because they're very closely allied on the subject and and, uh, work together for that. But that's really an excellent study. And if we took that piece by piece and looked at Romans chapter 4 and broke all of that down, that would be very profitable to us. But Paul ends that chapter and then begins chapter 5, verse number 1, by saying, Therefore being justified by faith. And he writes, therefore, because that entire preceding chapter has proved this point. Justification is by faith. Or we can say that by faith, justification is applied or it's made experiential. Now, you can write this on your listening sheet, that faith is the instrument by which we receive justification. So faith is the instrumental cause. It's not faith itself that justifies. You see, faith as a concept really means nothing. Faith is the vehicle through which we receive all of God's blessings. In the book of Hebrews, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And one of the things that faith does is to secure the blessing of justification. But we don't want to be confused about that because faith is just the, the instrument. It's the vehicle. It's not the cause of our justification. It's the mediating function through which justification is received. So it's a prerequisite, but it's not the cause. The ground of justification is actually the blood of Jesus. Romans 5 verse 9 says that we are justified by his blood. And the way that we reach the blood of Christ is through faith. So I want you to see also that it's not faith that makes us worthy. Notice on your listening sheet this statement that faith is not meritorious. Faith that's placed in God is not demanded because it makes us worthy because in itself it's meritorious. Faith can never be meritorious and there's a good reason for that. And it's because the faith that we have to believe in Jesus Christ is also a gift of God. It can't be part of our works. It is mer- it's not meritorious. It's given by God. Now, we have a great example in Scripture in the Old Testament. And we're, and we're going to get into the Old Testament quite a bit when we get a little bit further on in the third chapter and see how that Paul uses Scripture uh, to prove justification by faith. And the only place that he can go is where? Old Testament, because there was no New Testament. So he had to go to the Old Testament to prove his point. But we have a, I'm not going to use this one later, but let's look at this particular one. It's a great example of the simple requirement of faith, and it's found in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 21, there were many of the Israelites that were dying from the bites of poisonous snakes. And they were dying, of course, because they sinned against God. And so God sent those snakes as chastisement against them. And I'm not going to detail that story, but Moses was given a remedy for the snake bites. Numbers 21, verse 9. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it up on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, Moses didn't tell the people, now, if you want to be healed of your snake bite, then the first thing that you have to do is you've got to clean up those wounds. Then you have to take some medicine, and then you've got to suck the poison out. He didn't tell them that it's going to cost you a certain amount of money before you can be healed of these snake bites. And so if you don't pay up, then I'm sorry, you can't be healed. Well, Moses told them that the only way that they could be healed was to look at that brazen serpent that he'd placed on a pole. Now, that seemed like a very foolish thing to do. Nobody had ever been cured of a snake bite like that before. So what good could it possibly do to look at a pole? 
Well, Moses wasn't asking the people to, to reason this out and then to determine what to do on their best assessment of the situation. No, they had to take the pure, the cure that he prescribed because that's the only cure that would work. So no matter how simple that the cure seemed to be, they had to have the faith to look at that pole. And the same thing with us, that God doesn't ask anything from us. He, he doesn't require us to do some great thing in order to justify us. He doesn't say you have to go through acts of penance or anything like that to prove yourself worthy. God only asks for one thing, and that is we are to believe what he says. Now, that Old Testament story of the brazen serpent on the pole was a foreshadowing of the way that salvation would come through the sacrifice of Calvary. And so in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking about that subject. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so there you see over and over again in those verses, Jesus himself speaking, talks about believing. He speaks of faith. And so as that serpent in the wilderness had to be looked upon, he says, so must the Son of Man be looked upon because he's the only one that can heal from the disease of sin. Now understand that then. Faith is not the thing that healed. The thing that heals is what the Son of God does. He's the one that cures the snake bite, so to speak, or cures the problem of sin that's deep in the heart of man. So no amount of posturing on the position or part of the children of Israel, no home remedies, no self-applied medications, none of that could change the effects of snake bites on the people. The only cure was one that was worked in them by faith. And so the believer today formulates no potions to get rid of the disease of sin. He has to look in faith to the Savior lifted up on the cross of Calvary. So the point here is I'm trying to get across to you that faith is simply the instrument. It's the vehicle by which we receive justification. The thing that actually justifies is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. Now secondly, justification is by grace. Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, there's none of us that deserves anything from the hand of God other than condemnation. God is under no obligation to save a single person in this world. God was under no obligation to send a savior. And even further than that, God was under no obligation to accept the sacrifice that Christ made on Calvary as the payment for our sins. Now, that substitutionary work of, of the Savior, God did accept, and he did that because it was an act of his free and marvelous grace. Titus 3.7 says that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, there's a very, very good reason why justification can only come by grace because that's the only method that preserves the glory of God. See, God is not going to allow us to have any part, any, even just the smallest part of our salvation or our justification because then we would receive some of the glory for it. And the Bible clearly says, you can look it up in the book of Isaiah, that God says, I'm not sharing my glory with anybody. And so if you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved by grace. Well, what is it that made God provide the plan of justification? 
we can only say this, that the moving cause of justification is the grace of God. Justification is only made possible through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And so in God's grace, he provided his own sacrifice as the means by which we could be justified. So it was his blood versus the fig leaves. And that's why I said at the beginning that when God killed those animals in the Garden of Eden and clothed Adam and Eve, he was showing them that it's going to take a blood sacrifice and you can't do it, only God can do it for you. Now, before I move on to the last point tonight, let me just mention two other things uh, rather quickly. Thirdly, justification is confirmed by the resurrection. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 4.25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. See, Jesus was crucified not because of his own sins, but because of ours. And he was raised again not for his justification, but for ours. And the resurrection of Christ is what sealed or what guaranteed that Christ's death settled the sin question and accomplished our justification. Then we notice this, fourthly, that justification is evidenced by works. It's not our work. That's the ground of justification. We've already proved that. But the Bible does teach that it is our works that prove that justification has been affected in the heart of a sinner. And so the contrast between a dead faith that actually does nothing for you and a living faith is explained in James 2.14, where James says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And the literal interpretation of that is, Can that kind of faith save him? Or the kind of faith that does not produce any works? Can that kind of faith save a person? Well, the answer to the question is no. That's not the kind of faith that saves. The faith that saves is one that always gives evidence that something has happened in the heart of the person. And so every Christian is going to evidence that saving faith by the works that they do. And that is actually the assurance of our justification. How do we know that it's happened? Because God's changed our heart and made us start to do things that we didn't do before. Now we live for him. Now we work for him. That's actually the examination that we talked about it for all those months in the first, uh, first epistle of John. It's all about examining this to see if justification has actually taken place. And James points out the same things in his epistle. Now lastly tonight, and we'll finish very quickly here, thirdly, is the results of justification. What is it that's accomplished by justification? Well, here's the blessing. Justification ensures we are free from condemnation. Now remember, again, the opposite of condemnation is justification. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And look that up sometime and be sure to kind of circle that word condemnation in that verse because the word there means the same as judgment. And I'll get to that in just a second and we'll see why that's important. Then in the 33rd and 34th verses of Romans 8, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So because we have been justified in Christ 
we are never going to face the wrath of God. See, God put all of the condemnation that we should have received upon his own son. And that serpent on the pole was made of brass. And this is why I said it's important for you to remember that condemnation in Romans 8.1 means judgment because brass in Scripture is always a type of judgment. And so what God did was to pour out his judgment upon Jesus Christ. He was judged for us. So he was punished for the sins of all who would believe in him. So I don't have to be punished. I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I believe that he was punished for me. That's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And so you can see how, how all these other doctrines flow out of this very important principle of justification by faith alone. Now remember, I said that justification is not having your sins excused, that it's not having your sins overlooked. No sin that you have committed is ever overlooked. So what happens to it? Well, every sin that you have committed, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, every sin that you have committed or ever will commit is punished in Jesus Christ. That's what he went to the cross for. So God is going to allow me to go into heaven someday because through faith in the benefits of Christ's blood, his justification has been appropriated to me. So because of what Christ did for me, I can become an adopted son of the Father. Just like Romans says that I become an heir and a joint heir of Jesus. And so it's not anything that I did, not my righteousness that gets me to heaven, but Christ's righteousness. And what happens is that the righteousness of Christ is credited to my account. My my good things, whatever they, I might think that they are, and as far as my justification is concerned, God says none of it's any good. It's all filthy rags. It's, it's no good at all. It's Christ's righteousness, which is the basis that changes my legal standing before God. So I was on the wrong side of the law once, but then when I put my faith in Christ, I came over to the right side of the law. And now I have peace with God. Now I'm justified with God. Now eternal life is secure. Now, folks, there is indeed a battle in Christianity over this doctrine. I, I thank God that we're Baptist and that God has given us the truth of this and we can answer this question that Job asked. How can man be just with God? We can answer that question through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's how we're just with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look in your word tonight. And we're especially thankful, Lord, that, that as Martin Luther saw this doctrine of justification clearly and came to the truth and began to teach truth to the people in his time, we just thank you, Lord, that this has been preserved since the time of Paul and the time of Christ, the time of even going all the way back into the Old Testament, as we'll see soon, even back to Abraham and before, that the way to be saved has always been by faith in you. And so, Lord, we just thank you that that truth is preserved, and today we know that we can believe it and we can be in heaven because Christ has taken all the punishment that we should have taken. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the faith that we can have in his blood and that you have led us to that belief. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.